each time I read through Revelation, the, the thing that stands out to me more and more is how this book is a book that is really more than anything else. It's about God. It's, of course, a book of prophecy. And it even refers to itself as a book of prophecy. And we know that it is uh, filled with prophecy. And we're certainly uh, considering it from that perspective. But I don't want us to lose sight. And I want us to really you know, focus on the, the fact that it is about God. The primary emphasis, of course, is on God the Son. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's Son. But God the Father features prominently in the book as well. And that's going to be our focus today. When he is mentioned, the emphasis is on his power as creator and on the fact that he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. Every time there's references to God, that seems to be the, the, the main points that are emphasized. And we see that in the verses that we read. Now, I don't think that we as modern Christians give enough attention to the study of God. And as a result, I think we are spiritually impoverished uh, because of our, our lack of attention. You know, we, we live in a, uh, a kind of a pragmatic culture, which means that we're, we're, a lot of times we're really into doing, we're not so much into thinking. As long as it works, it doesn't really matter how it works or why it works, just the fact that it does work, that's the important thing. Uh, that, that's, that's kind of our culture. And I think that our culture is, to some effect, um, or in some sense, it impacted our, our way of viewing our relationship with the Lord. So we just, we're glad that it works. And we're happy to, to you know, do, do those things that you do as a Christian. But sometimes we don't, we don't stop and think about important things like how it works or, or why it works or, or looking at those deeper things concerning God. And it seems to me that an earlier generation of believers knew better than we do the, the vital importance of knowing God and knowing him deeply. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. Listen to the words of 22-year-old Charles Spurgeon. He said this. He said, it has been said by someone, the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe that it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of the child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom the believer calls Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. 
But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. 22 years old, he thought deeply about God at that age and went on to think deeply about God throughout the rest of his life. And, and so he had a great impact on his generation. And so it, it's needful for us in the, in the midst of all of the, the craziness that, that we live in, in the, the modern age, and all of the distractions that we are surrounded with, it's important for us to think more deeply about God. In his classic book on the subject of God, the attributes of God, the book entitled The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. So high or low thoughts of God. If we, if we think deeply about God, we're going to have high thoughts of God, and that's going to translate into the way we live. But if, if our thinking about God is, if we, if we fail to go deep, then inevitably we will be shallow as Christians. And that should not be the case. So uh, these two verses, verses 8 and 11 of the fourth chapter, they give us a closer look at God and tell us five things about him that we need to think about. And these are the five things. They tell us that God is holy. They tell us that he is almighty. He has all power. Uh, They tell us that he is eternal, that he is self-existent, And finally, they remind us that he is uh, the creator of everything. So those are the things that we want to uh, consider together. Beginning with holy. We speak of of God as holy. We sing about God as holy. We opened up our service today with that great hymn, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Taken, of course, from uh, the passage right here. Now, when we talk about the holiness of God, the, the question is this, what are, we, what are we really referring to? Now, the word holy, as perhaps you've heard, the word holy means separate. And some people emphasize uh, with that, the, they, they refer to it as the otherness of God. God is other than everything else. He's, he's different. He's distinct from everything else. And that is certainly... Uh, something that is being communicated in this, uh, this term holy or holiness. Uh, but the, uh, the idea of the holiness of God ha- has sort of two aspects to it. First of all, it denotes that he is absolutely distinct from all his creatures and is exalted above them in infinite majesty. So that's, that's kind of the first 
aspect of, of what it means when we think of God as holy. This includes the ideas of absolute unapproachability and awful majesty. So when, when we're talking about God as being holy, it, the, what, what it's saying to us first and foremost is, is that God is so different, he's so separated that he's unapproachable. Paul stated that very thing in writing to Timothy. He spoke of, of the Lord as dwelling in the light that no man can approach. And so he is absolute unapproachability and awful majesty. Now, when I say awful, uh, we need to understand what the word awful actually originally meant. It's funny how words change their meaning over time because uh, when we say awful today, that's not a good thing, right? You say something was awful, you're saying it was bad. But awful originally meant full of awe or awe-inspiring. Uh, so we've, we've sort of replaced the word awful with awesome, but the problem with awesome is we've taken the awesomeness out of it because everything is awesome today, right? And you see, the reality is the, the word awesome, it, it truly could only be applied to a few things. But when you take and you make everything awesome, then you've just sort of taken away the actual meaning of awesome. When I tell you that the burger I had for lunch yesterday was awesome, I am doing a disservice to the word awesome. So God is awe-inspiring. He's awful in the sense that he, he is full of awe. Or he, he inspires us to be full of awe. So that's... That's, that's the idea, and as one theologian said, the, the, the holiness of God, it awakens in man a sense of absolute nothingness. See, when we encounter the holiness of God, this is, this is our response. And it's not even a, 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 a thought-out response, it's just an automatic response. This is just what happens when, when uh, a creature encounters the holiness of God. There's a sense of absolute nothingness. There, there is a creature consciousness in the sense that I suddenly realize that I am uh, just a, a, a creature. Now, don't get confused by the word creature because, uh, again, it's, it's a word that's sort of changed its meaning over time. You know, honestly, when I, every time I read the word creature, I can't think of, I can't help but thinking of the creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> that, that, that was my first impression of creature as a kid. So we, we read about the four living creatures and you think, man, these creatures, they were creepy. No, creature just means a created thing, a created being. So when we talk about our encounter with the, the holiness of God, it brings to us our, our creature consciousness. It, it leads us to an absolute self-abasement. In other words, we're just automatically in the, in the presence of God's holiness. Man is automatically humbled. It's, it's automatic. It's instantaneous. It is the response 
that comes just as a result of being in God's presence. It's not like we get into God's presence and we go, wow, God is holy. I better humble myself. No, you, there's no thought process involved. You are automatically on your face. That's just where you go. And we see that. I'll point that out in just a minute. So that's the first part of holy. But the second, and the, and the one that we more commonly think about, which is absolutely uh, correct as well, is God's holiness points to God's majestic purity. His moral excellence or ethical perfection. So when we're talking about God being holy, we're talking about him being absolutely pure. Absolutely righteous. No trace of anything evil or sinful or impure in him at all. John, who wrote this uh, revelation out, who penned it, he spoke of this in his first letter. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is what he said about God. He said, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's John describing the, the holiness of God in, in the moral sense. So when we think of God, we need to think of him, first of all, as holy. That's what it says here. This is what the, the, the living creatures are proclaiming. You know, they're, they're not proclaiming... Um, really, they're, they're not proclaiming God as love. They're not proclaiming God as just. They're not proclaiming a, a number of things that God is that they could have been proclaiming, but they proclaimed holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And this is the one attribute that is most frequently uh, used in reference to God, especially in the Old Testament. And so again, it's that picture of absolute purity and absolute separation from all other things. So holiness puts God in, in a category all by himself. Now, man's response to the immediate presence of God as seen in numerous examples in scripture uh, gives us illustrations of what we're talking about here. When you go through the Bible, you find that there's a number of uh, places where we see men encountering God and responding. And that illustrates what we're talking about. So take, for example, Job. The story of Job, perhaps you're not aware of it, but Job is a man who suffers uh, greatly. He's perplexed. Uh, he's lost his wealth. He's lost his family. He's lost his health. All of these things are going on. Friends come along. They try to understand why he's going through these kinds of things. They come up with all the wrong answers. And fi finally, God comes and he appears before Job. And Job's response to God illustrates what we're talking about. When, when Job finally sees God, he's got all kinds of questions before he has this encounter with God, but now he sees God and this is what he says. He says, I heard about you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you and I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. You see, like, like we said a few minutes ago, he's, he's utterly abased before God. That's what happens. We see with Daniel, another example of this. Daniel is the Old Testament uh, version of John. The book of Daniel is the Old Testament equivalent of the book of Revelation. And just like Don, uh, John, 
Daniel sees these, uh, he's given these amazing things and he has these experiences where he's right there in the presence of God. And Daniel writes about those experiences and he says this, he says, and then I fell down as dead before him. You see, that's that's the response. But Isaiah uh, probably gives us the, the clearest understanding of what happens here. Isaiah sees almost exactly the same thing that John describes right here. Isaiah chapter six, we read that Isaiah says this. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up. He was there upon his throne. And he said, and, and around the throne were the, were the four living creatures, the seraphim, and they cried, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah says this, his response to that was, woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. So you see, the, the human response to God's holiness is always the immediate recognition of our own unholiness of our own separateness from God. That's, that's what happens. So when we think about God, and when we're ever tempted to entertain thoughts about God, like, well, you know, you hear uh, people today, uh, you know, with the atheism in the culture, you hear people saying things that really are blasphemous in, regarding to, in regard to God. You know, they accuse God of uh, being responsible for all of the the horrific things that happen, say through war and uh, you know the raping of children and all of this kind of stuff, uh, you hear people put these kinds of accusations over against God if there is a God. And yet, the reality is there could be nothing further from the truth about who God is. There's not any place in God where anything like that would even have any sort of a presence whatsoever. So when we think about God, we have to think of him in the terms of who he is, in the terms of his greatness, and it starts with holiness. But it doesn't stop with holiness. Then as we read on, we read that he is the almighty God. Holy, 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 Lord God almighty. And almighty is pretty self-descriptive. It means that he has all might, or it means that he has all power. The Bible tells us in numerous places that power belongs to the Lord. A psalm gives us that exact uh, wording. Power belongs to the Lord. God's power is unlimited power. He has all power. All other power is delegated power. Now, there are other powers. The Bible makes reference to other powers. Even refers to evil powers. Uses the term to describe the the demonic host as principalities and powers. But you see, their power is delegated power. It's a power that God has allowed them to exercise. But at one time, at some point, he will take all of that power from them because all power belongs to him. I think of the words of Jesus to Pontius Pilate. Maybe you remember the story there in uh, 
the Gospel of John, where we're, we read there about Jesus standing before Pilate. He's being tried. And Pilate is asking Jesus questions, and Jesus is not answering. He's not responding. And Pilate says to Jesus at a certain point, he says, are you not speaking to me? Don't you know that I have power to release you or to crucify you? And Jesus said, you would have no power whatsoever over me were it not delegated to you from above. See, Jesus put it in perspective. Here's Pilate, the governor of the Roman province of Syria. Here's Pilate speaking as the mouthpiece of Caesar saying, hey, don't you know I have power? And Jesus says, you would have no power because all power belongs to God. And listen, nothing can overpower God. Nothing can overpower God. Now, this is what men and devils have been trying to do from the very beginning of time. And, and this attempt to overpower God, it's going to culminate in this book of Revelation. We're going to see it. it it's going to work itself out in history, obviously, but we're seeing history in advance. And this is what it all comes down to. Men and devils are seeking to dethrone God. They're seeking to overpower him, but it is impossible. It cannot be done. And of course, as we read through the book, we're going to see that is exactly the case. Men's efforts have failed thus far, and they will continue to fail, even though all of the demons and all of humanity rises up against God, they will not dethrone him. As a matter of fact, as the second Psalm says, he that sits in heaven will laugh at such a gathering. So God has all power. Nothing can overpower him. But then we see also that we're told here about his eternal nature and his self-existence. Both things are included in the reference to God as the one who was and is and is to come. Now, maybe you remember we've, we've uh, met with this phrase earlier in the first chapter. This is how God is described. But here we have it again, the one who was and is and is to come. And there are a number of things that are included in that, but two that I'll point out are the eternal nature of God and his self-existence. So when we say God is eternal, what are we saying? We're saying that God didn't have uh, any beginning and he has no ending. And let's be clear, only God is eternal. He, this is one of the things that <laughs> makes him God. He alone is eternal. So he has no beginning. He has no ending. Moses in the 90th Psalm, he said uh, that from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God had no beginning. He has no ending. But eternity is a hard thing for us to wrap our heads around, isn't it? It's one of those things that it's like the more you think about it, the more it uh, evades comprehension. At least that happens with me. The more I think about it, uh, it's, I don't feel like I'm getting any closer to understanding it. I feel like the harder I think about it, the less I just end up like, oh, 
my brain is just on overload. Eternity. How do we understand eternity? Well, of course, the problem is that we are creatures of time. We only know time. So for us, eternity is a, it's a concept that's just difficult for us to even get hold of. Now, C.S. Lewis gave an illustration that maybe is helpful. He said, uh, he said, take a sheet of paper and imagine the sheet of paper, just, it, it just goes on infinitely. And then he said, take a pen and just somewhere you know, on the sheet of paper there right in front of you, just, just draw a small straight line. And he said, that's history right there. And everything else, this infinite sheet of paper is eternity. So some, some say that eternity is not something distinct from God, that eternity is actually, it is part of who God is, and that very well might be the case. Eternity is not just a long, 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 long time. Because again, we're thinking in terms of time. Eternity is something different. Time fits into eternity. So God is eternal. And that necessitates really that he also be self-existent. And that is also what is being stated in this reference to him. Now, have you ever heard a child ask the question, who made God? Lots of kids have asked that question. I, I've had a number of kids ask me that question. And it's a, it's a perfectly legitimate question, right? Because everything around us was made. And a child could go through the various questions leading up to, you know, to, to this final one. Well, you know, might start with, uh, mommy or daddy, who made me? Well, God made you. Uh, who made uh, the flowers? Well, God made the flowers. And then naturally, well, who made God? It's a, it's a natural question. And you don't have to be a child to ask that question. You might have asked that question yourself, or perhaps the thought has crossed your mind. Well, let me quote R.C. Sproul. He says, the simple answer to the question is that God does not require a cause. He causes all creatures to be, but he himself is caused by no one. God exists by his own power. He alone is self-existent, and that characteristic separates him from all other things. God is the only one who can say, I am who I am. God is unique. He alone has the power of being. He alone is the source of all being. Now, being is, an, is a very interesting thing. Think about this. We, we are human beings, right? What, have you ever stopped to think about what that means? Well, a, a being is the way of, it's just another way of describing our existence. So we exist. How do we exist? Why do we exist? Because someone made us. We were brought into existence, and the passage here tells us that all things were created by him. It is by his will that all things exist. We exist because God made us. We have being because he gave us being. We do not possess being in ourselves. We're not, 
a self-existent being, you have no control over your existence. You had nothing to do with, your, with the fact that you came into existence and you have no power to keep yourself from going out of existence, at least in the sense of your, your physical life leaving you. You know, the most absolute evidence for our, our, our lack of power over our being is death. Because when death occurs, your, your being that has possessed your body is, is now, of course, removed from that. And, and there's, there's nothing you can do about that. But you see, God... He doesn't have that. He's, he's always been. He's self-existent. In him was life. Jesus said an amazing thing about himself. He says that he had life in himself. He's saying he's self-existent. He has life in, in himself. He's the author of life. And that's what we're talking about here when we're talking about God. Paul, in speaking to the philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens, he said to them, speaking of God, he said, in him we live and we move and we have our being. It is because of God's self-existence that we can exist at all. We are because he is. So now, just before we move on to the final point, just walk with me really quickly through this. Okay, so God is holy. He's completely other. He's so other than us in his uh, majesty and in his uh, purity that it, it automatically humbles all of creation before him. He has all power. He's eternal. He exists. Has existed eternally. He has, he has life in himself. Now, here's the thing. We need to think about this stuff. Because you know what happens? The, the benefit, the practical benefit of thinking about this is it, it puts everything in perspective. We often have our perspective distorted. We're often burdened and troubled and anxious about so many things that are going on. But if we keep in mind that our God, this, this is who he is, it just, it, it puts everything in perspective because what it's really telling us is, you know what? God's got it all under control. He really does. Now, the, the, the final thing that I want to just touch on for just a quick second in relation to God is the fact that he is the creator. And that's what we're told here. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things. You created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. God is the creator of everything. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that's what we're told. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the Bible begins. In the beginning, when time began, it began because God created it. And the New Testament equivalent to that is found in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. 
You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And over and over again, as I pointed out, this, this book of Revelation is going to come back around to this as God is finally bringing the whole universe under his immediate authority. And the revolt that began so long ago is going to finally be done away with. There's the constant reminder that all things have come from God. He really does own everything. He's the creator of everything. Now, you either believe that, you either believe the account I just quoted from scripture, or the only other real alternative is to believe the impossible. And this is the impossible, that nothing created something that became everything. Listen, that's what naturalism teaches. That's, that's, the, that's the bottom line of naturalism, that nothing created something that became everything. Now, in our culture today, the, the, the mind of man is so twisted. And you know, it is astounding how twisted the human mind. You know, we, the, the Bible has been telling us that the human mind is twisted. It's always told us that, but we, you know, we were kind of hesitant to believe it. But you know what? The, the, the deeper we go into depravity and the more we reject God, it's becoming, I think, you know, pretty clear to anybody who wants to see how twisted the human mind is. But the human mind is so twisted that it is considered intelligent or intellectual to believe something that is obviously impossible and absurd. And to believe something that is entirely possible and reasonable is considered stupid and foolish. So if you believe that God created the world, you're stupid, according to a lot of people in the culture today. But if you believe that nothing created something that became everything, then man, you're smart. How does that figure? Listen, think about it. What is a billion times zero? It is zero, right? Okay, so what is nothing? That nothing is nothing. Does nothing do anything? Nothing, nothing is nothing. So for nothing to create something is just a contradiction. How could nothing create something that became everything? But listen, that's what the argument really comes down to. And, you know, you can get, you can argue if you want to, if you have the, the ability and the education, if you want to argue on the level of, well, you know, whatever you want to argue. You want to argue fossils, you want to argue astronomy, you know, you, you can do all of that. That's fine. But if you're kind of like me and all of that stuff just goes in one ear and out the other, then let's just reduce it down to what it ultimately comes to. And this is it. Naturalism essentially teaches that nothing created something that became everything. And that is impossible. It's impossible. It's absurd. So it's not really the intelligent position. I think it's really the stupid position. But it's the, it's the typical, the emperor 
uh, has no clothes. You know, no, nobody wants to say it because, well, if you say it, you're gonna, people are gonna think you're, you're stupid. Well, if, if embracing the absurd is necessary in order to be thought of uh, as smart, then I will take my place with the stupid people of the world because it's absurd. It is absolutely absurd. God created everything. Nothing does nothing. It is nothing. You know, a while back, Stephen Hawking, along with another guy, they wrote a book. Stephen Hawking, at one point in his career, he actually kind of gave credence to the idea that there, there probably was a God, some created or creator somewhere out there. But he, he's, and, and you know, it's not, not like he was ever a, an, a, a devoted theist or anything, but he sort of gave place for it. But in his, I think it's his most recent book, came out a year and a half or two years ago, he came out and said, no, now, you know, there is no God, there's no, there's no necessity for God. And this is kind of a paraphrase of what he said. He said, we, we have discovered through uh, the laws of gravity that the universe um, could come from nothing, that nothing created something. Well, my friend John Lennox wrote a great book in response to that. And he showed how when the scientists today say nothing, they don't mean nothing like we think of nothing. Because the laws of gravity are not nothing. They're something. And so don't be fooled by the rhetoric. Just think about it. Nothing is nothing and therefore does nothing. Produces nothing. And those are really the two possibilities. Either nothing created something that became everything or God created everything. And I think just the, the logical position would leave you with God. But of course, the problem with God creating is that he probably has something to say about how to function as his creation, and that's the real rub. People don't want to hear that. But it doesn't matter. God is worthy to receive glory and honor and power as the creator. And now listen, as we close, it is by his will and for his pleasure we exist and were made. We please God and give him glory by living for his will. That's why we exist. Remember, we're not self-existent. We had no, no say-so in our, in our coming into existence. We have no say-so in our leaving this world. We're here by his will. And as the, the King James Version puts it, for by your will or for your good pleasure, everything exist and was created. We were created for God's good pleasure. We were created to know God and to live in a relationship with him. We were created to do his will. 
And this is what I want to leave you with today. I want to leave you with the challenge to think about who God is, to take time intentionally to, to think about these things, not to, not to settle for just, yeah, I heard about this and I heard about that, but, but take the time to go a little deeper like we're doing. We don't have time, obviously, to go real deep with this. But, but, you know, when we talk about the holiness of God or we talk about the fact that he's all-powerful or when we talk about his eternality or these things, to take the time to think about it a little more than we might normally do. To even, uh, you know, maybe, maybe pick up a, a book that will help us think a little bit about it. I, I referred earlier to The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, an excellent book that's very helpful in thinking about these things. But to do that, to think about, to meditate on his holiness, his power, his eternality, his self-existence, his creative genius. You see, as, as we think on these things and as we're astounded by these things and as we're humbled by these things, you know what it does? It just causes us to do what we were created to do. It causes us to worship and to live for his will. And I, I want to encourage you to do that. I want to challenge you to do that. There's two great books of revelation that we've been given. One is called general revelation. The other is called special revelation. General revelation is what we see in nature. Special revelation is what we have in the Bible. The difference is general revelation tells us pretty much about the power of God. Special revelation tells us about the heart and the love of God. You're not going to meditate on a tree and draw the conclusion, Jesus died for your sins. You're going to find that in the Bible. But you are going to meditate on, meditate on a tree or a star or something like that, and you're going to find out, man, God is awesome. God is amazing. God is powerful. And we need to do both. We need to think on these things. And so meditate, of course, on God's word, the special revelation. And when we read about the death of Christ and we read about the blood of Christ and we read about uh, you know, the love of God and all those things, think about it. Ponder it. Give time to consider the, the full implications of it. But when we think about creation, do that as well. I know for myself, this, this helps me tremendously. Because like I said earlier, it just, it puts everything in perspective. And what I like to do is I like to think about the, the micro and the macro. I like to think about the smallest things and then go out and think about the largest things and think that, wow, God's responsible for both of those things and everything in between. It's amazing. A mosquito's a fairly small, right? Mosquitoes have stomachs. Did you know that there are living creatures in the stomach of mosquitoes. Now, I only know that because my son-in-law is a biology professor and he tells me all kinds of weird things. <laughs> things that I wouldn't know anything about. And he's shown me pictures of these creatures 
in the stomachs of mosquitoes. And I'm sure that the people who made Star Wars and things like that, they saw those pictures at some point. And they, uh, some of their creatures, they, they modeled them after that. So imagine, I mean, the smallness of a mosquito and imagine creatures living in the stomach of a mosquito. And of course, there's things smaller than that, right? There's atoms, but then there's, there's subatomic particles and things like that. It's unbelievable. But then there's this amazingly vast universe that's so huge, we can't even begin to conceive of its vastness. And in it, there are all of these, they say now millions, they even say billions of galaxies and billions of stars in each galaxy. And some of the stars are so massive that it's almost incomprehensible. And here's my point. You think about all that and you realize that there's not one thing that exists that God did not make. Nothing. He's responsible for it all. He made it all. And here's the thing. A God who made all of those things, you can bet your life he's got everything under control. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be filled with anxiety. You don't have to be overwhelmed or overcome by the circumstances of life, whatever they might be, because this is the God that loves you. This is the God that is covenanted with you. This is the God that you're in relationship with. And man, you just say, well, I'm fine. God's going to take care of it. He's going to take care of it all. So whether it's personal things for you alone, or it's things that are impacting your family, or it's going out into things that concern us in our society, or whatever the case. I have to confess, when I heard that uh, Justice Scalia died yesterday, I just thought, man, that is a, that's a, that's bad. That's a bad thing of all times. But you know, it just had to take me right back to, well, God didn't die. He's on the throne. He hasn't moved one inch. And he's, he is the judge. He's not the chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. Supreme Court. He's the chief justice of the entire universe. He's got it under control. So you see that the, there's a practical thing that comes out of, of theological meditation. The more we understand who God is and his greatness, it has a practical benefit for us. It gives us peace. And so let these things astound you, let them humble you and worship him with your life dedicated to doing his will. You are here because God made you. That's why you're here. That's why you exist. He's given you life and he's given you life so that your life would come into conformity to his will and glorify him. Make sure that's happening because that's what it's all about. Lord, we thank you for 
the revelation of your greatness, your awesomeness. And Lord, I know that I have not done any justice to any of these topics because they're just so far beyond my ability uh, to articulate. But Lord, by your spirit, would you just impress upon us the, the magnificence of these things. And Lord, help us to meditate. Help us to think about these things. Help us, Lord, not to be content to just splash around in the shallow end of the pool of your greatness. But help us, Lord, to dive deep. Help us to know you better so we can love and serve you in a way that you deserve because you are worthy to receive all glory and honor and power. We bless you, we praise you, we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.